I think I just learned over time that I have to be able to trust my own instincts and portray whatever I'm saying to an athlete with complete confidence and with complete backing of the head coach because you never want to diverge and I, and I know sometimes young coaches they're so excited to coach that that's just they want to like do everything they can that is within themselves to to start coaching but you have to remember you have to back your head coach because you're backing the culture and you're backing like what they've created and I think it's just really important to to be a really good sidekick <laughs> even though you have bigger goals than that you you've got to kind of fall in line with that culture and really cultivate it and have confidence in doing that and over the over time then you get to kind of come up with your own pillars or your own culture but it takes years and years and years to do that I think What's up, everyone? I'm Mario Fraioli. You are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast, and my guest this week is Jenna Reedon. Jenna is the assistant coach at Hoka Northern Arizona Elite, where she's been on staff since January. Prior to moving to Flagstaff to work alongside Ben Rosario and crew, she coached in the collegiate ranks since 2006, most recently as an assistant at Louisville, where over the course of four and a half years, she worked with several All-Americans. As an athlete, Jenna ran collegiately at Arizona State, where she was teammates with Des Linden and Amy Craig. And this is a fun fact. In 2014, she set a world record for the fastest half marathon ever run on a treadmill. I always enjoy talking to fellow coaches, and this conversation was no exception. We talked about Jenna's new role, how it came to be, and what the transition has been like so far from the collegiate to the professional ranks. She also told me about how she got her start in running and what spurred her to pursue coaching after college, how her own relationship with running has evolved over the years, and a lot more. A big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. They've asked me to tell you about the new Fresh Foam 1080 V11, and that's real easy for me to do because the 1080 has been the shoe that I've logged the most miles in over the past year or so. I didn't think it was possible, but I love the new 1080 V11 model even more than I did the V10, which is saying a lot. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is the best fitting shoe that I own, hands down, and the Fresh Foam X cushioning feels super comfortable underneath my feet, whether I'm running 5 miles or 15. It's lightweight and flexible, but also responsive and durable. Basically, the perfect trainer to log most of your miles in, which is exactly what I do in them. I wear it on most of my non-workout days and for long runs too. So check out the Fresh Foam 1080 V11 on newbalance.com or at the links in the show notes and consider adding a pair to your rotation today. Also, a big thank you to Girls on the Run for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. This is an awesome nonprofit, and I am stoked to be partnering with them. Over the past 25 years, Girls on the Run has been inspiring girls to know and activate their limitless potential and boldly pursue their dreams. On Thursday, March 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern, that's just a few weeks from now, you are invited to join an exciting 25th birthday virtual event celebrating the inherent power and courage of girls. 
Keynote speaker Hoda Kotb will open an evening full of remarkable stories and meaningful celebration that is not to be missed. The best part? You're invited. Join me and RSVP today at gotr.gives slash TMS. That's gotr.gives slash TMS. This live stream event will include a keynote address from Hoda Kotb, a discussion panel with experts and athletes about building confidence in girls through physical activity, and a lot more. The event is free to attend, but donations can be made and special add-on packages are available for purchase, such as a copy of Hoda's newest book and a pair of Gooder sunglasses customized for girls on the run. So check out gotr.gives slash TMS for more details and register today. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with Hoka Northern Arizona Elite Assistant Coach Jenna Reedon. All right, Jenna Reedon, this is your first podcast. It is a thrill to welcome you to The Morning Shakeout. Yeah, thanks for having me. I feel very privileged to to actually be on a podcast, so I must be uh, doing something right in this world, <laughs> I guess. Well, you are. I mean, you recently just started a new job as the assistant coach of Hoka Northern Arizona Elite, working alongside Ben Rosario and some of the best long distance athletes that we have here in the U.S. So I think that's definitely, you know, worthy of trying to learn a little bit more about because there aren't many professional coaches in the U.S., period, never mind assistants and full staffs where this is what you get to do to make your living. And one of the things that I'm most curious about is what does a typical day in the life look like for you right now? Yeah, well, that's before I even answer that question, I think that's a really good point. Um, I'm so grateful to even be here and I feel a little bit lucky. Um, I think it's just there's so many avenues of getting into collegiate coaching. But when you think about Mm -hmm. professional coaching, it's a little bit harder to visualize like how do I even do that and right and you know Ben basically started this from the ground up he basically started his own business is kind of how I see it so it's definitely interesting learning about um you know how to pursue a job like this and I'm just grateful that the assistant job opened up and Hoka was able to support that so definitely feel really lucky so that's the first part of that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Ben is just kind of like feeding me slowly, like just soft pitches where he like more and more kind of gives me some more responsibility as the day goes on or the weeks go on. But, you know, we um, I'm pretty much just integrated into, you know, into the group and into the team. So we have practice um, pretty much every morning, at least six days a week. Um at 8.45 right now in the morning uh, during the winter months. We can start a bit later. And after practice, Ben and I go into the office. He's got like a small little office in downtown Flagstaff, which is which is great. There's, there's a ton of tempting lunch spots, which I have to <laughs> make sure I don't do that every day. Um, but yeah, then we we really just hammer out like I'm learning so much from Ben in terms of like the business side of things. And um, there's so much that you do as a coach in general that I feel like is so hard to explain. Like you, you work in that office, let's say from like 10 30 or 11 
till five and you're just constantly doing things, whether it's looking at training programs or um, talking about, you know, like the business side of things or in terms of um, maybe sponsorships, things like that. Uh, talking to, I got to, to talk to some of the athletes agents and meet them um, about upcoming races. And so that time gets filled really quickly. Um, you know, and then some days twice a week, we have a second meeting in the afternoon where um, I've been um, taking the lead on, you know, taking over some of the drills and plyometrics that we work on in the afternoon. So that's been pretty cool for me to kind of, or for Ben at least to give me that responsibility. And I get to sort of headline that with the athletes. So that's one of my major roles is kind of taking on some of that ancillary work. Um, so that's mm-hmm. been really fun. I know you're still just getting your feet wet at this point, but long-term, how have you and Ben talked about just divvying up the work of actually coaching? Because having you on staff frees him up to do some other stuff. And as you mentioned, he's just kind of like feeding you slowly at this point. But as you're in the role longer, how do you envision it evolving? Um, I think, you know, Ben's very collaborative. So a lot of it is just being a sounding board for him and being in it together, you know, like we're pretty much both at every practice. Um, and I, I do think maybe in the, like the, the ancillary work and some of the drills and plyometrics, like if I were to meet the team, um, in the afternoon at at three o'clock, he might not always come to that session because he's got, you know, seven phone calls lined up or seven Mm -hmm. different podcasts or meetings with sponsors where that allows him to kind of, you know, take that time and really grow the brand. And um, I think he's really excited about that. I mean, Ben's always going to be the voice behind the program and I'm just here to support that and learn more and more about that. So I think as the year, you know, as the years go on, it's definitely a collaborative approach, but Ben can't be at 10 places at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we'll even have like split groups that maybe there's a group on the track and the, there's another group on the roads. So then we're able to kind of divvy that up um, in a way that's manageable where an athlete always has a coach there um, versus, you know, when you don't have an assistant or you don't have the kind of help you need that way, you're going to miss that stuff. So I'm really excited that Ben doesn't have to miss that stuff. Let's talk about getting into the role itself. I remember it was sometime last fall, I believe September, when Ben posted the job that he was looking for an assistant coach. Take me back to that time and when you first became aware of it and what the process of applying for it looked like for you. Yeah, probably identical to everyone else who saw it on Twitter. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if I've ever seen a job opening like that on Twitter (laughs) and I applaud them for, for having the audacity to throw it out there on Twitter and just like get ready for um, the applications to roll in. So I thought that was pretty cool. It's actually a kind of a funny story about a few weeks before I even saw the job on Twitter, I was just chatting with my my head coach at Louisville, um, head cross country coach Joe Walker, and we were kind of just I don't know we you know how it is you kind of sit back and chat about 
everything. And we were sort of talking about like, how, how does a professional running group even get started? You know, like, how would you even go about doing that? And, and I even brought up the example of NAZ Elite, like, how did that get started? And how did all these athletes start to come there? And how is it backed by Hoka? And you kind of just wonder, oh, yeah, how it all happens. And so we were sort of chatting about that. And then two weeks later, Joe actually saw the post on Twitter and sent it to me. And he's like, you know, you should actually apply for this. <laughs> um, so when your own, you know, when your <laughs> when your own boss, boss reaches out to you that way, I think he kind of knew where my heart was and, mm -hmm. and supported that from the very start. And um, I thought that was pretty cool. I, I quickly saw it, you know, after, you know, I kind of joked around and said, nah, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to apply for that. You know, I'm here at Louisville. I'm in a really good situation. Um, I love my job. It's a great place to work. And I went to bed that night and I, I just like, you know, I'm really going to regret just letting that opportunity like pass me by. I have to at least apply and just see what happens. Um, and I never thought in a million years that I would actually get the job. So pretty interesting. Prior to that, was professional coaching on your future radar? Because you'd been in the collegiate system for, for quite a while, um, coaching at different schools and um, at, different, at different levels. But when you're thinking about the trajectory of your own professional career, was like exploring the opportunity of coaching professional athletes even something that was on your radar? I would say directly, no. <laughs> I think indirectly, you ask any collegiate coach out there and they, you know, I, I bet they've all dreamed about coaching professionals. Like, cause that would be, that's, that's the dream, right? You get to work with some of the best athletes in the world who are motivated and trying to make a, Olympic teams. And I feel like every college coach has that vision of like, yeah, I would do that. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. oh, that sounds really fun. So I certainly had that that vision of like, wow, that, that would be the dream. But in terms of like mapping out how to get there, it was non, that was a non-existent map. It was more, how do I climb this ladder of collegiate coaching and, and finally make it to a spot where I can stop climbing, which was, which, which was a really tough answer for me. Like I didn't exactly know, you know, am I going to stay an assistant for, my entire career? Or am I going to headline a cross country program? Or am I going to be a, a director of track and field? I hadn't quite, you know, figured that out yet. Um, and then I saw a job posting on Twitter and that changed the course of my career path. <laughs> it was just meant, it was just meant to be. I think so. Yeah. Going back to your beginnings as a coach, when did you first take an interest in it or know that that was the career path that you wanted to pursue? Um, I would say kind of late in undergraduate school at ASU, I was pursuing, thinking about pursuing um, a master's degree in exercise physiology. But, you know, that's sort of a vague um, degree that you have to really, you really have to have an avenue of like, what are you going to do with that? And in, in mm -hmm. terms of a career, you kind of end up lost. Um, so like when I started to think about that master's degree, I started to think about coaching. Um, 
And then when I pursued my master's degree at um, Appalachian State, um, Coach Curcio gave me the opportunity to start volunteering my second year of grad school. And that really opened the door for me in terms of like possibility, like, oh, I can do this. And, oh, I really enjoy this. So having that experience as a volunteer at App State was like kind of that green light for me. Were there any coaches in the course of your own athletic career, which I want to talk more about here in a bit, who had a profound influence on you? Oh, gosh. Um, I know this sounds like a silly answer, but I'm lucky enough to say all of them. I've worked with amazing coaches. Like it's probably why I thought I could pursue coaching is because I've always had, like even back in high school, I've had amazing coaches that were so passionate about the sport. And so they had so much belief in me that it like kind of blew my mind at the time. And I've always had coaches like that, even like at Arizona state, um, I was not, by any means a superstar. I was on a really good team, um, but I was very average, if not below average in college. And that didn't quite matter to my coaches as much as their belief in my ability to improve and my ability to work. And so I've just been super lucky to have that throughout my entire career as an athlete. Um, and as a, as a as a coach, I've worked with head coaches who are the same way. Just it's amazing how passionate like these people are about this running world, and I've kind of just attached myself to that. So yeah, I would say all of them. <laughs> Have you leaned on any of your past coaches as mentors as your own career has progressed? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Louis Quintana is definitely someone that I've leaned on over the years of, he's just always kind of been there for me as a coach and then as a sounding board as I entered the profession. Um, and then Mike Esposito at High Point University, he was the one who really, um, I had I had jobs before that, but he was the one who gave me a lot of autonomy uh, with the program that I was coaching. and. Um, I definitely lean on him as well for you just still you just develop relationships with these people who like kind of mm -hmm. give you a chance, you know. So I would say both Louie and and um, Mike Esposito were definitely two people who like stuck out who I've leaned on. Take me back to your grad school days at Appalachian <laughs> State. You mentioned how you did a grad assistantship while you were there and that sort of opened your eyes to what was possible as you wrapped up your your studies what did the next steps look like for you uh well luckily as i wrapped things up at, at app state i i kind of just like i said i knew that it was something i was going to pursue um so as you kind of think about that you you wonder okay how do i put myself out there Mm -hmm. And of course, the first person I called or, or chatted with about it other than Coach Curcio at App State was was Louie, who had coached me for two years at ASU. And yeah, he he ended up calling me back and saying, hey, I have a graduate assistantship open at ASU. Like, I'd love to have you, you know, join me for that. And so that was my immediate opportunity. There, there was no question that I was going to do that. So, um, so I actually, you know, 
began pursuing a second master's only <laughs> this sounds bad <laughs> this sounds bad but only to be a grad assistant sure. for the arizona state track and field program what was your second master's in higher education okay one year did not finish it but stayed on as a coach yeah so at least for a year just a year yeah so i was a grad assistant at asu for a year and then um an opportunity came up, my very first opportunity to work at um, Queens University of Charlotte, which is a division two school. Mm -hmm. And I worked with Scott Simmons there. So I just, I really jumped on everything I could as soon as I could. Um, Cause I, I thought that was how you did it. <laughs> so I just like, as soon as these opportunities popped up, I was like, yes, let's go. What were some of the biggest lessons that you learned in those first few years as you were trying to get your feet on the ground somewhere? Oh, gosh. Uh, biggest lessons learned, I would say, I think like all young coaches, you're either really overconfident or you're really underconfident. Um, so you, so you're, you're basically coaching your peers. And mm -hmm. at the time, you're not really a coach. You're not really that person that is that authoritative figure who's writing their training often this is not the case especially as a grad assistant so really i'm just trying to learn from the staff that i'm working with and i get to be a sounding board i get to carry out tasks that might seem minimal at the time but are certainly not minimal at all um and i think i just learned over time that i have to be able to trust my own instincts and portray whatever I'm saying to an athlete with complete confidence and with complete backing of the head coach, because you never want to diverge. And, and I know sometimes young coaches, they're so excited to coach that that's just, they want to like do everything they can that is within themselves to, to start coaching. But you have to remember, you have to back your head coach because you're backing the culture and you're backing like what they've created. And I think it's just really important to, to be a really good sidekick, <laughs> even though you have bigger goals than that, you you've got to kind of fall in line with that culture and really cultivate it and have confidence in doing that. And over the time, over time, then you get to kind of come up with your own pillars or your own culture um, but it takes years and years and years to do that, I think. As a female, did you have any hesitations getting into a profession that one is very much male dominated, but two is just very, I don't want to say, well, it's demanding in terms of the time commitment because you're going like literally year round, but it's also, you know, just very fraught because there aren't a lot of opportunities out there and it can take a while to land somewhere wh where you have just stability and the confidence that you can be there for a while. Yeah. Um, no, I did not. I maybe had just the right amount of being naive, um, <laughs> that it didn't really affect me. I never thought, oh, because I'm female, this affects me differently. Uh, I was just like, I, that was never a thought process that went through my head. Um, and it was thankfully never reiterated by or portrayed by anyone that I ever worked with. Um, I think everyone kind of saw like, hey, if this is what you want to do, let me help you get there. So again, 
very lucky to have like the mentors and support and head coaches that I did because it was never an issue. Um, they knew that I knew they knew that I could work hard um, and that the demand of the job was something that I could manage. And, and I don't think gender really plays a role in that. Of course, as you get older and, you know, you get married and you start about thinking about starting a family that can maybe play into into the decisions but again i still think like male or female you're still dealing with those decisions i don't necessarily think that it ever like stopped me you know from from being pursuing what i wanted to pursue or being hesitant like oh i can't do this because i'm female never mm -hmm. crossed my mind why do you think we don't have a lot of female coaches here in the U.S., particularly in the collegiate system? Uh, I, yeah, I don't really, I don't really know. It's it's a topic that we've we do talk about a lot, particularly like the you know there's the female coaches of the NCAA kind of have created their own little committee um, to talk about these issues and. It's a really interesting question because the generic answer is like, oh, well, once once they want to have kids or once they start a mm -hmm. family, then they're then they're going to leave the profession. Um, and I think that's super unfair because I think that like men have the same exact dilemma. They have to decide how involved they want to be in their families' lives as well. Maybe it's just more like accepted in the society that you know maybe men can can leave their families every weekend to go to a track meet or recruit on the road or you know make phone calls all night to recruits but it's still the same decision whether you're male or female that you have to you have to learn how to manage your time in a way that you can be very good at your job and also be very good at being involved in, with your family. So I'm not really sure why, other than the fact that like, you know, women do need support if they're having children, um, it can't be looked down upon, you know, like, oh, well, if you're having kids, then I don't really wanna hire you. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that's the mindset at all, at least not anywhere I've ever worked, but, um, there definitely has to be a system in place where families are supported by employers, male or female. Regardless of what level they're at. I think so. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. It's a demanding job for anybody. So, I mean, you're going to see, I see families, I see coaches all the time bringing their kids to track meets and practices and um, it's not necessarily a bad thing it's kind of cool because you get to teach your your student athletes or athletes about what it is to be a parent you know you're in a in a teaching moment I think with families how have you learned to protect your personal time so that coaching doesn't become completely all-consuming which as we've seen for a lot of coaches it certainly can be because it is just so demanding and, and nonstop year round? 
Um, yeah, wow. Protection of personal time. I think, you know, I think some people have like time limits where, you know, at eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night, they're not going to necessarily continue to respond to text messages or things like that. But I think you just have to adapt over the time. When I first started coaching or when I was a GA or early on in my career, um, we could not text recruits. So you, you had to wait till they were out of school and calling them like at night, out of school, out of practice. So it was a lot more evening evening time on the phone. Whereas now I think um, it's a little bit different. You can kind of talk to them a little bit more during the day. I'm not saying like coaches should be calling kids during school or anything like that. But um, I just think it's a little more easy to communicate with them as the rules have advanced and changed throughout the NCAA. So you can balance it for sure, you know, or you have certain days, let's say, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm going to dedicate those days to recruiting. And then mm -hmm. Tuesday, Thursday, you know, I'm going to take that time for myself. Um, you can try to do that <laughs> as much as possible. So I know you've only been on the job in Flagstaff for about a month or so. And are just starting to do more and more with the team. But what are the biggest differences between coaching at the collegiate level and jumping up to the professional level as far as what you've been able to observe thus far? Um, I think you've got, I mean, I don't, I think there's a lot of college teams out there that have a lot of commitment and people who are, dedicated at a very high level but they're also balancing that with going to school and figuring out their life and mm -hmm. trying to get good grades and get into grad school or get into med school and so like they're pulled in a lot of different directions and they're young you know they're 18 to 22 years old so they don't really some of them don't really know how to manage that yet or understand um, that the balance is super tough. And so at the pro level, I just think there's a little more time <laughs> and relaxation for them to like, this is their job and they take it very seriously and they're going to show up with a lot of intent and purpose. And then they're, they're going to go about their day after that because they have families as well. Um, a lot of them have significant others, families, some of them have other jobs too. But um, I just think there's a very business-like approach that um, they're all in on this and there's nothing that's going to interrupt that. Um, but they're also still human. <laughs> so they, they need space, you know, to go about their day, whether it's if they have kids or families or part-time jobs there's other aspects of their life that they're going to to take care of at a high level as well. So that's probably the biggest difference. Two-part question to follow up on that. First part, is there anything you think you'll miss about coaching at the college level? And the second part of that, is there anything that you certainly won't miss about coaching <laughs> at the collegiate level? Oh, yeah. I mean there's, it's hard to beat that like competitive team environment. You know, when you're going head to head at the ACC championships or any conference meet or, or national competition, um, I think 
Yeah, I think that you're, I've always been so excited about track and field, you know, like the team competition and points coming from field events and throwing events and sprinting events and distance events. And, and I've loved, I've always loved that aspect of track and field where it's individualized, but it's also a team sport. And sometimes that gets lost, I think, at the professional level a little bit. You don't have as much of like that team, I guess, team sport camaraderie where you're going like head to head with another competitive team. I'm really going to miss that part of it, I think. Um, but certainly there's still like the same amount of pride when you put on mm -hmm. You know, when you put on the Hoka and AZ Elite jersey, there's pride in that. And I can see that. I haven't even, oh, I guess I went to one competition so far. And I, and I mean, you see that right away. There's so much pride in um, the unit here. And there's individual pride as well. But I think it really matters for them to, to be running for Hoka and AZ Elite. Like it, it means something to the group here. So that's pretty cool. Um, what I won't miss, oh gosh, um, I'm not sure, you know, recruiting was pretty tough, not, not because I didn't, um, enjoy it. I liked, I really liked talking to high school kids about like what they believed in and what I believed in and, and if it could be like a good fit for them. And you really like watching them improve and going from point A to point B, um, but I didn't quite enjoy like trying to sell something to someone. I, I sometimes felt that way. Not that I, I was always genuine in what I believed in recruiting, but there's just, um, there's a lot of choices out there. So as a high school kid, you have to make, or as a, as a young adult, you have to make pretty big decisions on what matters to you and why you're making that decision. Um, and that was always tough in recruiting. So I'm kind of probably won't miss that as much. <laughs> you still have to do some of it though at NAS Elite. And I mean, you and Ben, I guess, would do it together, but you're still trying to recruit some top talent to join your group, I guess, every year, but not quite at the level as you would in college where you know you're only going to have someone for four years or so. Right. Yeah, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, we're looking at the top 10 list in the NCAA versus over a thousand high school <laughs> kids and and plus you really want to line up not that you didn't want to do this in college because you do but you have to line up values like do you see yourself at NAZ Elite why like here's the culture here is what we do this is how we operate and if it's not a good fit then that's fine like you just move on um, and you as a, as a professional athlete you find that fit for yourself um, plus there's the whole side of contracts and agents and, you know, support that way. So it's a little bit different, I think, recruiting at this level. What are the biggest things that you bring to Nazalite as an assistant coach? That is an excellent question. I have to remind myself <laughs> that question constantly. Um, but I'm glad you asked it because I've been thinking a lot about it and I just recently talk to the team we had like our beginning of the year sort of kickoff mm -hmm. meeting recently and um it was it's, it can be a little intimidating like i'm walking into one of the best if not the best um, professional running groups in the country and so you think how do i 
bring value to that. And I was probably two weeks into my my job here and we had all like sat down and watched the movie a time and a place which was really amazing movie i highly recommend it um just documentary about you know some of the team's time leading up to the olympic trials and you sit there and you watch that movie about the team that you're on and you had nothing to do with any of the success that they had um or the moments they went through the blood sweat and tears that they have all poured into this program. And I, I left that movie theater thinking the exact question that you asked me is like, dang, how do I bring value to that? And after I, you know, kind of sat down and thought about it, I kept coming back to the answer of investment. I just, I just have to keep investing in these people. I have to keep investing in the vision I have to invest in the culture, invest in the brand. And I think once people see your investment in what their pursuit is, they you form a relationship with them and you know, or they know that you're on board, that they're that you're here to support them, that you're invested in their vision, in their goals, in their work. And I think it takes time, but I do think that's the value that I bring is I have that ability to invest at a very high level in what they're doing um, from day one. I was probably invested before I even got here. I just didn't really know it, you know, so that's, yeah. How do you keep yourself sharp as a coach and continue your education, even though you've been doing this for a while at this point? (laughs) Well, when I was younger, I definitely went to, um, you know, classes and like got the level one certification. I know there's level two and level three. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of continuing, continuing education, but I would say the biggest thing that I've learned over the years is like talking to other coaches who are really good at what they do. Um, and just like picking their brains constantly. And I would do that outside of the realm of distance running quite a bit too. So you know, really like sitting down with our sprint coach, at, particularly like at Louisville, I would talk a lot to like our sprint coach about drills and form and just like what they're doing at practice that day and why. And then I would talk a lot to like the multi and pole vault coach as well and, and kind of just like try to soak in like why she was doing what she was doing. And I think you can just learn so much from other coaches who are really good at their craft um and and i've learned over the years like it's it's it shouldn't be looked down upon to like call another coach and be like hey what do you think about this athlete or hey what do you Mm -hmm. think about this workout or hey how are you guys doing your you know 10 week build up into this specific block of training um and now i'm in a different world of of marathoning um you know, obviously you don't think about marathoning as much at the collegiate level. So um, it's been really interesting. Like I pick Ben's brain all the time, or I, I'll definitely listen to why his logic is what it is. And so like, I just feel like I'm constantly learning. And then I'm also talking to strength coaches about why they're doing what they're doing. Um, I mean, you're just constantly just listening. Yes. Last coaching question before 
we pivot. What advice would you give to someone who's in college or a young coach who wants to go down this career path, whether it's at the high school or collegiate level, or maybe eventually to become a coach at the professional level? Um, probably just to really rely on find people in your life that believe in you and what you want to do and let them help you, you know, let them mentors are a real thing. And sometimes you don't even know you have one until five years later when you look back. And I just think that, you know, I still talk to my high school coach, my college coach, all the coaches I've ever worked with. I still try to keep in touch with with all of them. And like I said before, I was really lucky that they believed in me. So you just have to find people who believe in you and, and then obviously take that and always believe in yourself. It almost sounds like a given and it sounds a little corny, but you've got to, I mean, who else do you have? You know, you've got to rely on yourself um, and have confidence to pursue opportunities, whether that's emailing coaches and calling coaches or asking other people like, hey, how do I get this job? I saw this job opening. How do you think I can pursue that? Um, And just really trying to build your network. I've learned a lot about building your network. You know, in terms of personality, I probably prefer to be a little introverted and, and not quite as social and maybe not, you know, reach out to people all the time. But over the years, I've learned that you really have to do that to create a network to move through this industry. Um, So I've been lucky to have people in my corner to do that. Going back to your beginnings, when do you first remember running coming into your life? Oh, I was your I was your typical soccer convert in high school. (laughs) (laughs) So running came into my life the way a lot of the way it does for a lot of people where I'm like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to run to stay in shape for soccer. I've heard that story so many times and then running stole me away from soccer. Um, so that's, <laughs> yeah, I would say probably like seventh and eighth grade is when I started figuring out running was the thing for me. When did you first start to show some talent in it? Oh gosh, talent is relative, <laughs> but I would say middle school and high school, I remember probably we had these little like goal cards that we had to write. I think it was freshman year of high school. And I think I wanted to break like, I don't know why it was like break 611 rings a bell. It's really strange goal, but I wanted to break 611 in the mile or something like that. And then my freshman year, I ended up running like 505 or something like that and then I was like oh okay I'm I'm a lot better than I thought I was like in in that realm I guess how did you decide on Arizona State for college Ooh, another good question um I wasn't super heavily like recruited out of high school like I said I was fairly fairly average um I think I ran like 502 and 1105. So um, I had, you know, I had some ability to kind of look at some different schools and take some recruiting trips. But at the end of the day, I, I mean, ASU was 30 minutes from my, you know, from my hometown where I grew up in Glendale, Arizona. And I just, 
I give a lot of credit to Coach Drenth and Louis Cantana because they were Louis was the GA there when I when Coach Drenth was coaching there. So I knew him from recruiting. He recruited me, and so did Coach Drenth. But I would say Louis a little bit more. As as I said, it was very average at <laughs> high school. So I just always liked them. I thought they were just they per, were persistent and they believed in me, and I was. Um, you know, I could get a fairly good academic scholarship to ASU. And I liked that they believed in me even when I wasn't like, I knew I wasn't the fastest person on the team. Um, so I think like from the very beginning, beginning, I could tell they were genuine in their recruiting. And I just really liked that. So I ended up there. What's it like for you at this point of your career to come back to Arizona, the state that you grew up in and spent most of your life in until you embarked on your coaching journey? It's pretty cool. I didn't envision it for myself, honestly. When I left, I kind of never really thought I would come back, particularly to, to Phoenix. So, I mean, Flagstaff is definitely a little bit different. It's a mountain town and you don't mm -hmm. feel like you're in the middle of the desert. So, um, it's really cool to come full circle and it was so, so awesome. Like when I got the job, um, you know, on social media, I, I wasn't a huge social media person, but a lot of people like reached out from my past and from high school and from growing up in Arizona that were just like so thrilled for me. And it kind of like took me aback, like that they, you know, that they even cared. And it was really cool to have all that outpouring of support, like, oh, welcome back. And we're so happy that you were able to get this position. And that was just really like humbling. And um, it made me feel really good about what I was doing. And it made me feel like uh, this is very fitting. You know, it's very, it's a good move for me, you know, versus like I kind of I could be anywhere. I didn't have a certain state that I wanted to be in per se. I was very willing to climb the ladder and see where it took me. So it was kind of cool to come back to Arizona and feel like, oh, this could be a home like my home, you know. Throughout your coaching career, I mean, you've bounced around from position to positions. I mean, it's the nature of the job to, to some degree, but did you ever, did you just feel like a nomad um, or at any point during your coaching travels, did you feel at home in a certain place? Oh, that's another really good question. I, I did feel a bit like a nomad in terms of not feeling like I ever like got to the point in my career where I was like, this is it. This is where this is where I want to be for the rest of my career. And that that doesn't have as much to do with not liking where I was because I really enjoyed particularly Louisville at the end of my college coaching career at, right then. But it was more of the question of like, what role do you want to have? Do you want to be mm -hmm. an assistant? Do you want to be an assistant to an assistant? Do you want to be a head coach? Do you want to be a director? So I kind of mentioned that before. That was more of the struggle for me was like the role versus um, the location. So, or like the the institution per se. Um, so here I am again as an assistant, but I'm in a completely different 
world at the pro level. Mm -hmm. So I feel pretty good about it. Back to your days at Arizona State. I know you were teammates with Des Linden and Amy Hastings, now Amy Craig. What were they like in college? Like, could you tell as one of their teammates that those two in particular had greatness in their future? Well, now they have to listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. Des is a two-time guest of this podcast. I still need to get Amy on at some point. Okay, perfect. Well, yes. I mean, they're grinders. I think that whole that whole team at the time, we had a lot of like blue collar grinders and I'd like to consider myself one of them, but that might be a little bit much. I, I just think I learned from them. Like I learned what hard work was from them. Like you think, you know what hard work is and then you get into a different program or another level and you're reintroduced to hard work. So for me, that was, joining that program. And I'm sure Amy and Des can t attest to then progressing away from college and into the pro ranks that they were reintroduced <laughs> to hard work again. So I'm, I think you're always kind of learning that. But yeah, I mean, I knew they were grinders. I knew they could work. And then certainly they were talented. I mean, Amy was the collegiate record holder at the time, like when she when she left college. So when you're a collegiate record holder, and I think in the five, indoor 5K, it was, certainly that says something about you. And um, I know Des, I mean, Des was fast in college. I don't think she was quite as fast as Amy, but like you just kind of knew the marathon, she'd keep getting better and better. And those two in particular, what I loved about them is like, like I knew they were going to continue to pursue running because they're the type of people whether they got pro contracts or not, they were the type of people that like you could just tell they weren't finished yet. Mm -hmm. And like, it's really a testament to both of their careers. I, I mean, we're in our mid thirties <laughs> and above, and they are just still like, like to this day or, you know, up until recently have been really still getting better. So that's pretty amazing to me that they've been able to do that. How were you thinking about your own running toward the end of your collegiate career? We talked earlier about that next step for you going to, to grad school and studying exercise physiology. Did you plan on continuing to run competitively or at least seeing how far you could take it as an athlete? Oh, yeah. I was a bit of a dreamer as well. I, you know, I definitely dabbled in the marathon and pursued pursued um, marathon training, I think about three years post-collegiately. Mm -hmm. um, I was always pretty good at being self-aware. Um, so I was, I knew my talent level fairly well. And I feel like I knocked on that door of <laughs> maybe like my capacity as a runner um, when I was training for the marathon, maybe didn't quite get there, but I was close. Um, so I felt fairly good about as I like got more and more into my coaching career, my competitive running kind of took more and more of a backseat. Um, but I was okay with it because I sort of came to peace with knowing like, eh, I probably got pretty close to my ceiling, you know. Well, you got a world record out of it, didn't you? Oh, wow. Yeah, you did your research. <laughs> yeah. Most people Tell don't me a bit know about that. that about me. <laughs> fun fact. Yes, it is a fun fact that I use in trivia sometimes. 
Although, unfortunately, I can't use it anymore because Sarah Hall has rightfully taken the Annihilated throne. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. That was just kind of like something that Amy, it was Amy's idea. I blame Amy. She thought it would be fun for me to get after it. And then she said, well, I'll just break it after you, which she obviously had bigger <laughs> fish to fry than <laughs> breaking a, a record on a treadmill. But so that was cool. Like she just put the idea in my head and I did it and I knew I could break the old record because um, I don't think many people like pursued it, you know, at the time. And um she and Alistair came out among some other friends that like came out to like kind of help me do it and pro form treadmills like sponsored the whole event. So it was kind of cool. I felt like superstar for a hot second. <laughs> um, and yeah, I broke, broke the record and I think I had it for like six years or something like that until, um, COVID happened and there was nothing to do. So <laughs> people are looking for odd records to yes, break. Yeah. So then Sarah Hall, like you said, annihilated it rightfully. So, I mean, it was, it's actually viable now. So I'm happy that she was the one to do it. I'm interested in what role running plays in your life. Now you're coaching full-time. It's a very demanding <laughs> job during non-COVID times. There's a lot of travel involved, but do you still get out with some regularity? Yeah, I I think, like I said before, I've come to peace with running, not dictating my life. And so um, I'm, I call myself a joy runner now. So yeah, I like get out, bounce around the trails here and there just for the joy of it. Um, and that's, that's the role it plays in my life right now. So it's kind of nice. I feel like, you know, this is, must be what regular people feel like when they're not <laughs> insanely driven by like this this pursuit of how good you can be, which is an amazing pursuit. Obviously I'm working with people who do that every day, but it's personally kind of nice to just let go of that and just like run for fun. Was it hard for you to let go of that? Yeah. I think I went through a phase of it being hard where you're just, you know, it's, it's what drives you for so long. Um, and I think it's harder more so to like report back to other people, you know, other mm -hmm. people in the running world. How's your running going? Like, are you doing any races? Those are always like the harder questions for me is like, well, you know, not, no, <laughs> I don't have any races on the docket. And, and so, you know, races and performance dictate so much of your pursuit of running that it was, it was tough to let go of that and then just enjoy running for running and, become a little bit slower and not feel judgmental of yourself about that. But I went through the phase of feeling a little bit sad and then you get over it and you're like, I have mm -hmm. a pretty sweet job. I'm still involved with running at a very high level. You know, I think it's okay for me to just enjoy running for what it is. As a coach, is that something you have to work with your athletes on, meaning they tie their identity to being a runner, specifically a competitive runner, and they tie up a lot of their self-worth in their times and their results. And you need to help them to step away from that and realize like, hey, yeah, that's really important, but you're so much more than that. Yeah, I definitely think you have to work with that concept throughout your career as an athlete and as a coach. Um, I will say at the professional level, I feel like most people in the group that I work with have a really good handle on 
on that concept. They mm-hmm. they are so much more than than just being a runner. And of course, it's challenging and difficult because it is your job and it's your life, and you're pouring your entire being into seeing how good you are. So there's certainly challenges with letting go of that concept and not self-identifying as just a runner. But I think the older you get and the more experienced you are, the more you realize like you have to remain level-headed in this sport um, if you want longevity in the sport. So they're really good at realizing like your best and worst race don't define you. They don't define your career necessarily. I think it's like the whole body of work Um, the character that you bring to the table and the work ethic that you bring to the table. And I think they certainly have a handle on that. But obviously, like it's a topic that we talk about and that we have to navigate because you are going to have some really tough races like that you come down off of and you just ask yourself, why the heck do I do this? Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have some really great races where like, how can I get any better than that? And so you have to balance that with um, just loving the journey and the process of training, I think. Last question before we wrap up this conversation, what's exciting you most in running right now, whether it's your own new job and individual pursuits or in the sport as a whole? Um, I think the most exciting thing is, I can give you both answers. Like personally, I feel like this job is just such a good fit for me. And I'm just really excited to be here and be a part of this team. Um, And I just feel like, you know, you feel like you've worked, you keep climbing this ladder and you've worked your whole life. And I feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. And that's a really good feeling. Um, It's a rare feeling, I think, sometimes. So I'm super grateful for that personally. And then professionally, just within the sport, oh my gosh, there's just so much depth. And I'm just so excited that that competitive desire has really like, like is shining through all the challenges that we've had in 2020 and some of 2021 now. But um, you just, it's really cool to see the sport continue to thrive. um, At least, at least on the athletic level where these athletes are so invested and so willing to train and, and continue to race and perform at a high level, whether you have organized races or not, I think seeing that passion and just the depth uh, across the board professionally and in collegiate athletics and in height, I mean, you would be half of this year I spent talking to high school kids who had their seasons canceled, who were training their butts off, you know, for, for something in the future. I just loved, I love the mindset of like these 16 year old, 17 year old kids who were resilient, I guess, in the face of all these challenges. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. I share many of your same sentiments about what's exciting you in the sport of running right now. But Jenna Reedon, thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both New Balance and Girls on the Run for sponsoring this week's episode. I didn't think it was possible, but I love the new Fresh Foam 1080 V11 model even more than I did the V10, which is saying a lot. 
The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is the best fitting shoe that I own, hands down, and the Fresh Foam X cushioning feels super comfortable underneath my feet, whether I'm running 5 miles or 15. It's lightweight and flexible, but also responsive and durable. Basically, the perfect trainer to log most of your miles in, which is exactly what I do in them. I wear it on most of my non-workout days and for long runs too. So check out the Fresh Foam 1080 V11 on newbalance.com or at the links in the show notes and consider adding a pair to your rotation today. Girls on the Run has been inspiring girls to know and activate their limitless potential and boldly pursue their dreams. On Thursday, March 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern, just a few weeks from now, you're invited to join an exciting 25th birthday virtual event celebrating the inherent power and courage of girls. Join me and RSVP today at gotr.gives slash TMS. That's gotr.gives slash TMS. The event is free to attend, but donations can be made and special add-on packages are available for purchase, such as a copy of Hoda Kotb's new book and a pair of Gooder sunglasses customized for Girls on the Run. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>